Thanks for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. President Obama says a large cash payment made to Iran was for a decades-old legal claim, not a ransom payment. U.S. warplanes strike ISIS targets in Libya, and the Summer Olympic Games open tonight in Rio de Janeiro. Joining me for the week's top international news on the Friday News Roundup, Yogi Driesen of Foreign Policy, Carol Lee of the Wall Street Journal, and Uri Friedman of The Atlantic. I do invite you to participate in our conversation. Give us a call, 800-433-8850. Send an email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Welcome to all of you. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. Yoki, the uh, U.S. paid Iran $400 million in January. Why has this become such a big story now? Uh, I think largely because of the brilliant reporter sitting to my left, Machine Jay Solomon from the Journal, had a very good scoop about the money being airlifted in cash. And I think something about that image is why it resonates. The President Obama had talked in the past about this. So the fact that the money was paid, people knew the fact of what the money was, which I can talk to in a second, was known. But the image of this money being delivered in cash, not American dollars, but in euros and francs, and the timing. It is genuinely hard to imagine that it's purely coincidence on the exact same day this money landed. That was the exact same day that Americans were freed. So the money, people knew what it was. What it was was the Shah had spent $400 million to buy American F-16s. Then, obviously, his government fell, and that money was frozen. The U.S. had agreed to give that money back plus interest in it, in total $1.7 billion, which is the original money, $300 million in interest adjusted for inflation. And this was the first $400 million of that $1.7 billion. So the money, it was known it was going back. It was, I think, the image of it, and it was the timing, because it is just genuinely sort of hard to get past. Money goes, people come back, and the White House says there's no connection. Carol. Well, yeah, and they also say that the $1.7 billion is saved taxpayers' money because they would have had to pay out up to $10 billion to Iran if they had settled this through The Hague. But what this has done is created a political firestorm in the sense that Republicans have seized on this to once again renew, first of all, their criticism of the Iran deal and the president's Iran policy broadly and also to revive claims that this was ransom. And there's going to increasingly be noise from the Congress um, pressing the administration for additional answers. They still have not said precisely when this money was delivered. They still have not said how they paid out the remaining $1.3 billion, although they've said it has been paid out through a fund that is reserved for settlements such as this. And it complicates the president's efforts to make sure that the Iran deal is cemented before he leaves office, because part of what they've been doing is to try to get um, the international financial system to ease money to go into Iran, because the Iranians are claiming that the U.S. and the other world powers they secured the nuclear deal with are not living up to their end of the bargain because the money is not flowing fast enough. And Congress is already nipping at the president's heels on this to try to stop certain transactions and various other financial moves that the White House is trying to make. And, Uri, why is the Justice Department getting involved here? 
Well, I think um, you know, there's a broader question about um, uh, was there, there. I think there's a lot of um, uh, debate here about was this ransom, um, and I think it's an interesting debate more broadly about the U.S. ransom policy as a whole, because this has been a controversial topic. Uh, it, uh, the U.S. says we don't pay ransom um, because we don't want to encourage people to take um, uh, Americans hostage. Europeans, however, have been known to pay ransom. And I think one kind of subtext of, what, of the debate going on here is this question of ransom payments. Um, in, in June 2015, the Obama administration actually revised its policy to say we will not prosecute families um, that, uh, that Pay ransom, pay ransoms on their own. They also said we're going to create government kind of uh, fusion units to respond to hostages. Um, so they have been trying to revise their policy, but they still the the really the red line that I think a lot of um, government agencies and a lot of critics of the Obama administration are focusing on right now is um, the U.S. government itself cannot pay ransom. And even if this wasn't explicit ransom, was it implicit in the sense that it all happened at the same time? Why was it? paid in cash, Carol? Because they needed to get around various sanctions and because Iran, I mean, what's clear here is that Iran wanted a deliverable up front when all this was coming together and they requested cash and the administration agreed. And it's very hard for the administration or for Iran to get access to money because of all sorts of sanctions. And so the U.S. went around and collected euros and francs from various European banks and stacked it all together and, and flew it in. And that just enables Iran to have immediate access to money, whereas it would, could have taken months for them to get the, the payout. And predictably, uh, Donald Trump got involved in this uh, argument and at first said he had seen a video of the plane landing with the money. And now... He has, on a rare occasion, turned himself around. You know, it's fascinating. I know you were talking about this a little bit in a previous hour, but this is one of those weeks where if he had said absolutely nothing, Hillary would have been battered over ties to the Iran deal. She'd have been battered over the way she characterized the FBI director's comments about her email, which her characterization was empirically false. But because of Trump, all of that gets blown away. So you have Republicans in the Senate referring to this as Iran-Contra. I mean, that phrase is being used again, that this is... Obama's Iran-Contra affair, which is ludicrous, but that's the phrasing being used. If Trump were not picking fights, not talking about videos that clearly do not exist, this would be a bigger story. There'd be a Hillary angle to this, too, but there isn't. And with, with Trump, it's to the point where he lies about things that are so easily verifiably lies. You know, he says there was a scheduling issue. The NFL sent him a letter. NFL says, no, there is no letter. He's saying, I've watched a video. The idea that there'd be a video that he could see of this relatively secretive thing is, of course, ludicrous. And he lets it go. And then for this particular one, as you say, was unusual and that he walked it back. But you wonder why the lies that are easily verifiable, the falsehoods that you can just look at and know are wrong. Carol? Well, he also waited two days to retract his statement. He said this Wednesday at a rally in Florida. And, and he didn't just say it. He went into detail talking about, you know, going on about there's no paparazzi there. And so, you know, we saw this video and they were doing it and he just kept talking about it. And and then it hung out there for two days where everyone was saying there is no video. And then today he tweets and says that he was wrong um, or the correction, Donald Trump doesn't say he was wrong. He said it, he was referring to a video in Geneva of the Americans being released. 
Uri. But one thing I think about his quick reaction, it speaks to how the Iran deal is very polarizing and everyone has their positions and people are seizing on this story to confirm their positions. So the Democrats say this was part of a, you know, backers of Obama say this is part of a grand bargain. We got a lot of things done. This is an old 40-year-old uh, payment that was Iran's money anyway. We were just settling all of the issues that we have with this relationship and look, the Iran deal is working in many ways a year on. Um, critics say this is appeasement. This is another example of uh, the Obama administration kind of going out of its way uh, to to um, get Iran money that it could use for nefarious purposes and also uh, bending to all of the Iranian leaders' demands. So we're seeing not just Donald Trump in the video uh, context, but also more broadly, critics and supporters kind of jumping on this to explain why they think the Iran deal was a good thing to do. So, Carol, your colleague wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal. What conclusions can we draw, or is this simply going to be one of those stories that becomes part of the presidential debate saying, look at what the Obama administration did. I think it's definitely going to become part of the presidential debate. The Iran nuclear deal had largely largely faded into the background. It had not been something that was front and center recently in the presidential election, and this has really revived that. Not only that, but you're seeing various Senate candidates, and the Senate is obviously, there's a big fight for the Senate, put using this as a wedge issue against their opponents, saying, you know, does in Pennsylvania and Florida and Colorado and Nevada. And and so you're going to increasingly see that. You're going to see that Congress, um, they've already called on Secretary Kerry to come and testify. Um, so I think it tells you a lot about how deep the divisions are on this issue and how something like this, which is uh, a new description on something that we knew happened earlier has really kicked up a firestorm. Yoki? One thing about this that's interesting is that the Iran deal is something that's divided the Republican Party in some ways, not as much as it has the Republicans to the Democrats, but when Donald Trump spoke to AIPAC, which had been one of the first times he did a teleprompter, it was him trying to repair kind of frayed ties with the Jewish community, he said of the Iran deal that he would enforce the deal, that he would enforce it better than the White House had, had said. What he did not say was, I'm going to tear the deal up on day one. And you've had Republicans, Tom Cotton, a whole coterie of Republicans in the Senate especially say, you know, Ted Cruz when he was running for office, day one, they tear up the deal. Day one, they tear up the deal. And for Trump, it was, I'll enforce it better. Of course, there are no details, but it's an interesting divide because implicit in that is the deal stands. I won't try to get rid of it. I'll just try to make it stricter. Yogi Driesen, managing editor of foreign policy and author of the Invisible Front. We are going to take your calls, comments, questions, 800-433-8850. Welcome back to the International Hour of our Friday News Roundup this week with Carol Lee of the Wall Street Journal, Uri Friedman of The Atlantic, and Yoki Driesen of Foreign Policy. Let's talk about uh, President Obama 
referring to the Islamic State, saying it's losing ground in Iraq and Syria and turning more to terrorism elsewhere. I think it was an interesting uh, affirmation of something that we're seeing, which is that ISIS has, you know, there's one uh, group called the IHS Conflict Monitor that estimates that ISIS has lost 12% of its territory in the last six months, 14%. Um, in 2015. So as its territory in Iraq and Syria are shrinking, we're seeing more attacks abroad, especially since the fall of 2015. We saw the Paris attacks, the Brussels attacks, and uh, Obama was saying this is what's going to be happening. As they lose territory, we're going to have to fight them more than militarily. We're going to have to fight them through intelligence and through ideological means as they try to do attacks abroad. And people have different theories for why this is the case. Um, But I spoke with uh, Robert Pape, who's a terrorism expert at University of Chicago, who argues this is about dynamic losses of territory. When terrorist groups or groups in general lose territory and they're fighting in a pitched way for that territory, they tend to resort to suicide terrorism. Others say this is a way to demonstrate we're still powerful. Of course, Carol. Well, I think while that's the the White House's argument and may be true and it's rational and it makes sense, the problem for the president is that what scares people are these kinds of attacks that you've been seeing. And he has not figured out a way to communicate why that's happening in a a way that really resonates with people and calms their fears. And, you know, if you talk to the folks in the White House privately, they'll say this is just the new normal. But that's not something that they can say publicly. And so the perception is that the president's policy is not working, even if militarily it's working in the sense that they're shrinking the amount of territory that the Islamic State has overseas. That's just not what people are feeling and seeing. Yeah, okay. yeah I, I completely agree. I mean, I think what's happened in some ways is ISIS has morphed from a physical group in a physical place to an idea. When ISIS had territory, they were encouraging people. I mean, they, we don't often enough listen to what a group says about itself. We too often listen to what U.S. officials say about that group or what outside experts say about that group. But listening to what they say about themselves is fascinating. And six months ago, it was, brothers, if you know how to be electrical engineers or sewage engineers, come to the caliphate because we need you. Now it's, we may lose Mosul, we may lose Raqqa, so brothers, stay where you are and carry out attacks. And that shift is utterly fundamental and fascinating because, you know, Uri mentioned some of the territorial estimates. Some of them go as high as 47%, that they've lost half of what they held in Iraq and Syria. The fight for Raqqa will start soon. The fight for CERT in Libya has already started. The fight for Mosul will start soon. So it's very possible that in six months, the three biggest cities they had will be no longer held by ISIS. At the same time, it's just as possible that in three months, you'll see not only attacks then, but attacks now. We know they have cells in Germany. We know they have cells in France. We know they're trying to get people to Britain. We know that they have people not that they've sent to the U.S., but who are sympathetic, who have radicalized on their own because ISIS is an idea. And ISIS, there was an interesting article in the New York Times about an ISIS intelligence network. And part of what jumped out at me was at the very end of the article, they said the U.S. is a great place to carry out attacks because it's so easy to get guns. So this was ISIS itself talking about the U.S. and saying just you can get a gun easily, so U.S. is easy. It's an easy target. So what about the U.S. escalating the war uh, with airstrikes in Libya, Carol? Yeah, this is something that we had been expecting for some time. Um, And, you know, the president said this week that these were airstrikes were requested. The U.S. is coming in to assist. He also indicated that this is not going to slow down anytime soon and, if anything, would would 
ramp up. The thing I found interesting about the president's press conference yesterday is that he was, here's a man who is standing in a Pentagon five months before he's about to leave office. And when he came in, he promised to be the president who would end all these wars. And he just went through one conflict after the other. You know, he's talking about Iraq and Afghanistan, two places he promised to get out of, new fronts in Syria, new fronts in Libya. And and so it's a remarkable turnaround from where he was and what he was saying when he came into office and and a huge disappointment, I think, to him that this is the situation that he's having to oversee as he leaves. And this will be his legacy. And now you have a Washington Metro officer uh, arrested for attempting to aid ISIS, Uri. Yes, what they found here uh, was that he was, um, one, they had been tracking him for years, and he had been making threats against FBI officials, saying he even claimed that he had gone twice to Libya in 2011 to fight against Gaddafi. Um, He also kind of praised certain terrorist attacks, but the, the thing that made it into a decision to to uh, arrest him was buying um, kind of almost gift cards, $250 worth of gift cards um, for mobile messaging uh, technology that ISIS often uses to communicate with people. And he bought that actually from an undercover agent, uh, and as a result, they detained him. He's actually the first U.S. law enforcement um, officer to be charged with aiding or trying to aid a terrorist group. I gather the FBI had been watching him for several years. Yes, they had been. They had been. There were concerns. And so that is kind of creating a question among some you know, critics observing this saying, well, you know, how is he still, you know, if you're watching him, how is he still right. able to be a transit officer and right. doing his job all the time? But I think they were waiting for something to really be able to act on, and this was it. All right. Uh, let's open the phones here. We have a caller in Winter Haven, Florida. Larry, you're on the air. Hi. How are you, Diane? Good, thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Diane, I had a question and a concern. I'm a, a former police, I'm a retired police officer, and I'm a former uh, military army and um, a volunteer from back in the 70s. I have four military children, two who are still currently active after 18 years each. I have concerns that about uh, my my thought was that when I was a police officer. Um, prior to taking the a very serious position, I was um, it was mandated that I took a psychological evaluation. And if you didn't pass that psychological evaluation, you could not uh, conduct work in the responsibility and doing the responsibilities of the law enforcement officer. Uh, in the highest office of the land, President of the United States, is there any type of protocol concerning? Uh, psychological evaluations or considerations as such, thinking about all the uh, uh, ways of a presidential candidate uh, such as Donald Trump. Yeah, okay. No, there isn't. What you're beginning to hear, though, and it's coming from, frankly, Republicans as well as Democrats, is a serious, not glib conversation about is something mentally wrong with Donald Trump. So it's easy to take pot shots six months ago, but now it's becoming a serious topic of is there dementia? Is why, there why is that becoming a topic? I think because the severity with which he responds to people, the kind of ferocity and his inability to let anything go, combined much more substantively with the fact that he says again and again and again things that are just flat out lies. We're beyond the stage of being able to say they're falsehoods or use softer language. They're lies. They're just things that are untrue. And then the question is 
does he know them to be untrue when he says them, or does he not know them to be untrue? And if he doesn't know them to be untrue, that's you can get into an argument about which is scarier, a president who has perhaps dementia and doesn't know that what he's saying is false, or a president who does know and just figures out that his supporters don't care and just says them over and over and over again. But I'm not saying this lightly because this is becoming a serious topic discussed by both parties, that there may, in a very literal medical sense, be something wrong with Donald Trump. Carol? Yeah, this is something that we're increase- we haven't seen before in a presidential election. Um, you know, you usually you just these are not questions or that have come up in recent cycles. And but when you have a candidate who says things like this week, Donald Trump said that Hillary Clinton was behind the four hundred million dollar. He linked her to the four hundred million dollar payment, and she had been gone as Secretary of State for several years. And then he says, it seems like every week there or every couple days, there's something, um, you know, candidates typically release their health records, um, whether or not that would include some sort of mental health uh, evaluation, you know, is is unclear. And Donald Trump's not releasing his tax return. So who knows if he'll release his health records. Uh, but this is this is in an, an, a very unusual situation. Here is um Something from Linda in Mount Lebanon, who is a psychiatric nurse. She says, since political candidates do not submit to psychiatric examination, the voters have to make educated guesses. She goes on to say over the past year, Donald Trump has exhibited increasing mood behavior and cognitive deterioration. Have you all seen that? I mean, I think that there's been an increase in the frequency with which he says things that are untrue. And I think there is there has been a difference in the way in which he responds to people. He now you know, referred to Hillary Clinton first as the devil, and then when he backed away from the devil, he said comparatively all she did was be help um, birth ISIS. So by comparison to being the, you know, Lucifer, that's probably a step up for Hillary. But you saw it in his attacks on the Khan family. I mean, he his tweet was, they've attacked me, how can I not respond? You don't normally hear a presidential candidate figure that they have to respond to literally everything that's said to them or about them. That's changed. But the frequency with which he's saying things that are false has got, gotten larger, faster, bigger, almost by the day. Hurry. I think, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that there's been, I think, more media and public discussion of these questions uh, recently, only in the last few weeks. I think one kind of turning point was at the Democratic Convention when Michael Bloomberg uh, stood up and at the end of his speech he said, let's elect a sane competent person. And I think that that, that kind of public, uh, full-throated um, argument for electing one candidate and not another kind of created a situation in which it became more of an open discussion. I will say that, you know, there is a tendency here to conflate a question about his mental health and conflict with questions about his policy ideas. And I think that can sometimes be distracting in a way. You know, I think uh, un- until recently there was a lot of discussion of these are good or bad policy ideas. Now it's become more a question of mental health, but there are also real policy issues that he's been voicing that need to be debated, whether you agree with them or not. Well, I, to add to that, the Democrats love this conversation. Uh, this is their core argument, and they're feeling it. Um, if anything, you know, the Hillary Clinton's main calling card this from now until November is that he's unstable, he's irrational, and to the extent that you can create a narrative in politics and the person you're creating the narrative about can play into the narrative, it just makes it more effective. 
Have you been up close with Donald Trump? I've I covered a couple of his rallies in New Hampshire, so it was rather early on. Um, and, you know, he's I have not been out on the campaign trail with him since. But I will say that his supporters are his supporters. He's not losing his core supporters with any of this. He has really strong, dedicated support. And certainly the money he's raised in the last week would uh, indicate exactly that. Um, I just find this a fascinating um, examination from afar, which is what everybody's doing, Yogi. Yeah, I mean, I, we've never, and we've known this now, and we it's become a talking point, but never in the history of the United States, certainly the modern history, has there been anything like Donald Trump from how he raises money. And as you said, he raised $80 million last month, so he had enormous success to how he does press conferences, to how he discard, throws out an idea, takes it back, says something else that contradicts it the next day, the personal nature of how he speaks about his opponents. We just haven't seen it before. And it's unique, and it's changed this election in fundamental ways. And you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. Let's take a caller from Indianapolis. Chris, you're on the air. Thanks, Diane. Great show. Great show. Thanks. It seems this first announcement of this deal from President Obama to lift the, the sanctions with Iran and free up the nuclear program didn't include the release of any hostages. And now we're hearing now that $400 million was laundered through European currency to secure the release. Is that true? Carol? Well, yeah, after the um, U.S. Re and other world powers reached the Iran nuclear deal, they went into a series of separate discussions on various things, including Americans who have been detained in Iran and this settlement of an arms agreement that was prior to 1979. Excuse is, me. I thought that two different groups... They were, Right. Uh, talked about first the four hundred million and then the hostage. They were separate. Right, that's correct. Okay. They were separate, um, separate discussions, all of which came together, according to the administration, coincidentally uh, in January. So there wasn't this. They were there was first the Iran, the nuclear agreement, and what happened in January, the, the weekend of the January sixteenth, was the implementation day, as they call it, where Iran had abided by its side of the agreement and. It went into effect, and the release of these Americans and the $1.7 billion settlement announcement, and now we know a $400 million cash payment to Iran. So that's a sequencing. I mean, I think the word he used was laundered, which is an interesting word. I mean, I understand why this is resonant. I understand why the idea that money was airlifted and pallets of cash that weren't U.S. dollars, it does have a tinge of just something unseemly. But, you know, as Carol explained earlier, it was... We simply couldn't transfer the money electronically, and you can't use U.S. dollars. But laundered is, I think, the wrong word. All right. To San Antonio, Texas, another question from Al. You're on the air. Last night on TV, the pastor who was released as part of the hostage uh, program commented that he was taken. They, the hostages were taken to the airport, and they were told they were going to leave in 20 minutes, and they sat there for several hours, and he kept asking, why aren't, why aren't we leaving? And the answer was, we're waiting for the other plane. And when the plane with the cash landed, then they took off. Now, if that's not hostage 
uh, money. What is, how can Obama say it's not? Lori, my sense of what happened there is he did go on and talk about the delays in leaving. Um, I think what hasn't totally been confirmed yet is did he actually, did anyone see an actual plane coming uh, with money, which I don't think has been confirmed. And that matters because the sequencing kind of matters. If a plane came with cash before hostages were released, it would suggest more strongly than is currently the case that there was some quid pro quo. I think, I think one challenge here about this debate over ransom is that all of this happened at once. And so to try to disentangle these various threads and connect one thing to the other is very hard. And so it becomes a more ambiguous debate about what constitutes ransom. Carol. So- yeah, the administration has um, pushed back on the pastor's retelling of events, uh, although they won't say exactly what is incorrect. And in leaving this space where they're not answering questions about the sequencing and the timing, you just lead people to draw their own conclusions, and it continues the story. Carol Lee is White House correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Short break here when we come back about, we'll talk about Syrian government and rebels trading accusations. Stay with us. And welcome back to the International Hour of our Friday News Roundup. This week's Syrian government and rebels traded accusations over alleged gas attacks. What do we know, Yoki? So one of them, which is in some ways I think the more interesting of the two, you had a Russian military helicopter. Russia, as we know, has been a sort of de facto air force helping Assad as his ground troops encircle Aleppo and make other pushes into rebel-held territory. A Russian helicopter was shot down. Russia lost five troops. It was for them the biggest single loss of life they've had since they started the intervention. The next day, you had reports begin to emerge that there were uh, there were signs of chlorine gas, chlorine attacks that had been this had been the weapon of choice, frankly, for the Assad forces now for more than a year. The deal that Assad struck with Russian help with the White House to avert U.S. airstrikes was not to use chemical weapons and to turn over its stockpiles of chemical weapons. Chlorine gas technically is not part of that deal, and Assad has been using it ever since. And when you Why look at, is chlorine gas not part of that deal? Because it's, it's dual use. Because we, we think of chlorine, we think of chlorine in a swimming pool or as a disinfectant. It's easy to turn into a weapon, so it isn't covered. But when you look at the video and the photos of what happens if you take in chlorine gas, it's horrific. It's burns, it's suffocation. So the damage, whether it is or is not technically a chemical weapon, fundamentally it is. So you had the sequence, Russian helicopter shot down, next day reports of people suffering from chemical weapon, from chlorine inhalation, excuse me, in that same area. Then separately you had in Aleppo, where right now the government has basically circled the city. You have have rebels still holding on to parts of the city, but being shelled on all sides. There, the report appears to be that the rebels were the ones who may have used a shell that had some form of chlorine or other 
uh, chemical agents inside of it. And what about Russia totally denying any responsibility, Yuri? Yes, Russia has denied any responsibility for the alleged chlorine attack. So has the Assad government, which is often suspected in these cases because the cl chlorine canisters came from the air. The Assad regime has an air force. The rebels don't. Um, but Russia's denials, as, as the U.S. looks into this, also kind of speak to this moment in Syria where all this is occurring while the Assad regime is pummeling Aleppo, the city of Aleppo, which is divided right now. The idea of a ceasefire, which was fragilely in place a while ago, is just in tatters right now. Negotiations are stalled, and Russia and the U.S. are trading accusations about who's doing more damage in Syria. So we're, we're really seeing a moment where things have gone very downhill in terms of finding a resolution. And what did the president have to say about this yesterday, Carol? Uh, he said that Syria is one of the main reasons why he has so much gray hair. Um, and he he's very frustrated with this. And this is um, this happening now points to a number of frustrations that the White House is having with its Syria policy generally, but also with Russia. They've tried again and again to get some sort of agreement with Russia, and they're just Russia's not living up to their end of the deal. This the president said yesterday that this um, ceasefire is barely holding on. They mm. want to try to cut a new deal with Russia, um, and you know what you keep hearing from the president is largely the same thing that Russia will have to prove that it's you know a legitimate actor on the world stage and. And that this will prove and how they respond to this latest offer of uh, some sort of deal um, will determine that. But he's been saying that for yeah. almost a year since Russia went into Syria. What do you think, uh, Yoki? I, mean, I think the White House, what they're locked in by is that they have no plan B. They've had plan A. Plan A has been diplomatic solution. They've spoken about that again and again. Then there was like plan A, subparagraph A, which was work with the Russians so that airstrikes are coordinated against ISIS. Russia has ignored that and bombed groups that were directly armed, funded, and trained by the U.S. But there is no plan B. Obama does not want to set up a no-fly zone. He clearly does not want to send in U.S. troops in any significant number. He doesn't want to arm rebels. So you've, if you're him, you've boxed yourself in so tightly mm. that you can be frustrated, but this is a box you made for yourself. All right. Let's turn now to what's happening in Brazil. And joining us from South America is NPR correspondent Lulu Garcia Navarro. How are you, Lulu? <laughs> Very busy, as you can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. Describe for us what Rio is like as uh, the Olympics are about to get underway. Well, it's an extraordinary moment, I think, for Brazil. On the one hand, there is a sense of palpable excitement. They've been building towards this moment for so long. The city of Rio de Janeiro is being showcased to the world, and there is a lot to love here, the scenery, the people. Um, I think the show tonight will be spectacular, according to so many of the people who are involved that I've spoken with. On the other hand, I'm sure you know that uh, it's been a very bumpy ride so far, and there have been a lot of problems in the run-up to the games. There are protests uh, taking place right now. Um, and, uh, you know, we are seeing people who are very concerned about the message that is being sent to the world. This is a country that's uh, going through an enormous economic crisis, political crisis, and many people feel that this isn't the moment to be um, having an expensive Olympic Games. So uh, who are these people who are protesting and at this late date, I mean, it would seem 
obviously, that the uh, Olympics are going to go on. Yes, I, I don't think that anyone is under any misapprehension that they can stop the games. But I think what they want to do is take the opportunity to air their grievances, which are many. Um, first of all, as I mentioned, you have this political drama playing out. The former, um, rather, the suspended president, the elected president, Dilma Rousseff, is uh, basically facing trial in the Senate, um, impeachment trial. Um, and then you have the interim president, uh, Michel Temer, who will open the games this evening. Um, and he is someone who is seen um, as illegitimate by uh, many people in this country. Uh, we are expecting, for example, people in the stands to boo him. Uh, when he officially opens the games tonight. Um, and so we are seeing, you know, a lot of controversy around these games simply because of the moment that Brazil is living. Um, you know, in 2009, there was when um, Brazil was awarded the games, this was a moment of great hope. It was a moment when the economy was growing. Um, you know, fast forward to 2016, and we're facing a historic recession and this political drama that has really, really affected the country. And now I gather there are concerns about terrorism. The Washington Post reported some Brazilians are staying at home because they fear a terrorist attack. Absolutely. I mean, this is a country that has not had to deal with terrorism in the way that Europe and the United States has had to deal with it. Um, part of its foreign policy has always been non-interventionist. It, it doesn't get involved in foreign adventures, as, as it uh, calls them. And so that has protected it in large degree from a lot of the forces that we are seeing uh, in the world at large. You know, um, unfortunately, because they are hosting the Olympics, that has meant that um, they have had to deal with terror. Um, and a lot of people feel that they are not ready for that challenge. Uh, if you think that it was only a few months ago that they passed their first anti-terrorism law, they didn't even have terrorism defined uh, legally here. So um, many people feel that possibly if uh, there is uh, an attempt uh, on the games, the Brazilians would not be ready to uh, face it. And there has been, you know, there have been a lot of criticisms about the security so far, people saying that they've been able to walk into venues without having their badges checked, um, you know, so it, it does raise a lot of questions. I should say, Uri, you've got a question for Lulu. Yeah, I'm just wondering um, what you're uh, seeing in terms of security there as a result of this threat of terrorism, because I know that, uh, you know, the, the state of Rio had to declare a state of calamity, almost effectively yes. saying it was bankrupt. And so because of that, they had, didn't have money to pay for uh, security to the degree they wanted to, to health care and other public services. Are you seeing that effect on the gra ground or hearing about reports of, of the lack of security or lack of public funding being an issue? Well, um, certainly in the run-up to the games, that was an enormous issue. We saw crime spike here, you know, murders up 15 percent, robberies up 40 percent. Now what we're seeing, however, is a flood of security forces into the city of Rio. It feels like a military camp, honestly. Uh, you know, there's no, you go everywhere and you just see tanks on the streets and people, you know, are, I mean, rather soldiers, you know, armed to the teeth. I was just yesterday uh, at, uh, you know, uh, the Olympic torch relay, and yeah. it was incredible. There were just so so many security forces, uh, riot police protecting uh, the torch because there have been protests, but also because they are worried that uh, something may happen. So there is a lot of security here on the ground, but the question is, as we know with terrorism, a lot of it has to do with intelligence. Um, a lot of it has to do with trying to prevent something before it happens. And so that is the big question here. Carol Lee. 
Well, yeah, I'm curious. This the Olympics are usually this time of pride and excitement, and everyone kind of comes together, and it's a good sporting and and you you have like sewage and Zika and violence, and so is it possible? Do you get the sense that there that will wind up once it, it all get comes together that will wind up fading into the background and we will see what we typically see with these games? I think it'll definitely uh, fade somewhat into the background if there isn't some sort of catastrophe, an attack or some other problem, uh, because after all, this is something that not only showcases the country, but it is about the athletes themselves. And naturally, uh, the drama will move on into the arenas. And I think that that's a natural progression. I also think, though, that there's the wider question um, that is hanging over these Olympics, and not only these Olympics, but mega events generally, uh, the World Cup as well, after all the corruption scandals, which is, are these games actually beneficial for the countries that host them? Um, are these types of events really um, events that benefit fit the people here. And that has been a debate central to Brazil in particular because it is such an unequal country. Uh, you have the city of Rio de Janeiro, 25% live in favelas, uh, shanty towns. Um, many don't have access to sanitation. And so when you see these gleaming new structures, many people ask themselves, what is in it for us? And I think that that is a very pertinent question. Yeah, Kate. You know, I'm just curious, sort of your, your gut feeling being on the ground, does it feel as chaotic and poorly planned as it does to us sitting here? I mean, do, do you get the sense that infrastructure isn't there and that there's sewage floating in the water? Just your gut since you're there because we're all sitting in a studio wondering it. Sure. Uh, I think it does. It, I think a lot of the veteran reporters, the reporters that have lived here for many years and have been covering these issues day in and day out, we thought they'd get it together better. We thought, you know, we've been reporting on these issues, but when the day came and the curtain was raised, somehow it was all going to come together. And unfortunately, that really hasn't been the case. It is extremely chaotic. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the financial situation. They just don't have the money to pay for basic things things. Um, they've had to get an emergency loan from the federal government just to put on the opening and closing ceremonies. Um, the budget of those ceremonies has been slashed almost by 50 percent. So, you know, things are very last minute. Things are very ad hoc. And you can feel it here on the ground. Now, will everything be okay on the day? Will um, people be able to enjoy uh, these Olympics? I think so. But it has been extremely chaotic. We've been hearing about lots of broken promises, though, that uh, the Olympics have not led to cleaner streets and less polluted bays, and even the rooms in which these athletes were supposed to be housed are less than what they expected. I know, and I think that that was really uh, when everyone started to think maybe the wheels were coming off slightly because this uh, Olympic village where the athletes are staying, this was uh, sort of a showcase of how these modern Olympics were going to be uh, put together. It was um, a village that uh, was paid for by private money. Um, the apartments afterwards are going to be sold off as luxury housing. Um, and so uh, the idea was that no public spending was going to be involved in housing 
training uh, these athletes and they were going to have the very best. And when the athletes showed up, uh, you know, that was not what they found. They found a place that in some cases didn't have plumbing, had problems with electricity, and uh, basically hadn't been cleaned for what looked like weeks or months. So it has raised a lot of questions about how Olympics are managed and specifically how Rio de Janeiro has put this all together. And you're listening to the Diane Ream Show. Yeah, I just wonder, you know, we were talking a bit before uh, we turned to this. Do you get the sense that this might actually be a watershed? I mean, since for the Winter Olympics, next time you had Azerbaijan and Beijing being the only cities that bid, do, do you kind of get the sense that this might be the last time a relatively impoverished developing city even tries to get the Games? I think that would be an unfortunate um, the unfortunate uh, sort of legacy of these games, if that were the case, because I don't think it's about impoverished. I don't necessarily think it's about um, struggling economies. Uh, you know, it is, I think, a broader question. If you look and you see Boston also <laughs> didn't want to uh, bid on the games, and, and that's in North America, a fairly prosperous city. You know, th there are certainly economies that are better equipped to deal with the burdens placed on, on uh, the cities when the Olympics come to town. But, um, you know, I think that certainly there is a broader question here for both wealthy and poor nations and the citizens that live in these cities. And I think that, yes, this debate is now sort of um, gone beyond simply Brazil, and it has gone. And, and a lot of the discussions that I see are about, you know, the Olympics themselves. And indeed, hasn't every single city that's hosted the Olympics come out on the losing end, Uri. Yeah, there were actually two economists that came out with a paper this year that said, with the exception of Los Angeles in 1984 and Barcelona in 1992, almost every city has lost money. That the idea that you get big tourism boost, a big economic boost, are actually exceptional and illusory. It's not actually the case. And so most people lose out in the short term and in the long term. But, Lulu, one final question for you. Do the people the visitors, the participants, at least seem to be enjoying themselves. Yes. <laughs> yes. They, I mean, this is such a beautiful city. If you've never been here, it is just one of the most beautiful cities in the world. You know, you have the sea, uh, green mountains tumbling down into it. Uh, you know, the people are warm and vibrant. The culture is incredible. Um, and so, yes, yes, people are enjoying themselves despite all the many, many problems. Lulu Garcia Navarro, she is our NPR South American correspondent for NPR. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. And I must say, we've got lots of emails, phone calls up here about that $400 million and its transfer. So I gather this is going to be an ongoing debate, Yoki. I mean, I, th I think it has sort of everything that makes a story have legs. It's got cash. It's got planes. It's got hostages being released. It's got this overhang of a very controversial deal. It has nuclear weapons. Takes you back to the Carter and Reagan uh, transfer, doesn't it? I mean, it does. I mean, in a very literal sense, because this dates all the way back to 1981, to the a fallout from the Iran hostage uh, when they took the embassy and the fall of the Shah. So in a very literal way, it dates back to 1981. All right. We'll leave it at that. Yogi Driesen, Managing Editor of Foreign Policy. Carol Lee, White House Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. Uri Friedman, Staff Writer at The Atlantic, covering global affairs. Have a great weekend, everybody. You thanks, too. Dan. You Thank too. You. And thanks for listening, all. I'm Diane Rehm.
The Diane Reem Show is produced by Sandra Pinkert, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boteed, Susan Casey, Danielle Knight, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewinskis. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR. NPR.